This episode of the GL Review is brought to you by Unruled. Now, I gotta say, the first time I heard about Unruled, I think I had the same reaction as most people. What's the big deal about a notebook without lines? But then I bought one, and I gotta say, it has not left my side since. Uh, I carry it around in my backpack all the time. I'm constantly taking notes, both for school and for my startup. I'm constantly scribbling down sketches and logos for shows such as the Hot Take Show. Look, the notebooks are sturdy. The paper is high quality. They're manufactured in America. They're also environmentally friendly. And, you know, this whole idea of visual thinking leading to more creative ideas, after a week, I got to say, I think I'm on board. I was talking to two of the folks running it, Bennett and Crippa, and they were saying how once you go unruled, you can't go back. I'm starting to think that might be the case. Anyway, go check them out by logging on to beunruled.com. Use promo code POWDERBLUE to get 15% off your next order. That's P-O-W-D-E-R-B-L-U-E, no spaces. It's an awesome startup ran by some pretty awesome college kids. I honestly can't wait to see where it goes next. Anyway, back to the show. Welcome back to... The GL Review, I'm Nathan Graber-Lipperman, creator and editor-in-chief of Unplugged, our site dedicated to commentary on pop culture, sports, and lifestyle by college kids and for college kids. And today, I'm bringing you a really, really, really awesome interview with Chris Ruder, the creator and CEO of Spikeball. You know it, you've played it, you've loved it, and I'm really lucky, I mean, Chris just so happened to be friends with two of my teachers, Billy Banks and Neil Sales Griffin, uh, who are teaching an entrepreneurship class here in the garage at Northwestern. And Chris came to talk to our class about creating Spikeball, how there's not really one linear path in the startup world. I mean, Chris is a guy that studied photojournalism undergrad at Marquette went on to work some sales jobs at companies such as Live Nation before ultimately going full-time with Spikeball, appearing on Shark Tank, uh, you know, inking deals with ESPN to show round net championships, and the rest is history. So Chris's story really resonated with me when he came to talk, and I followed up with him. We set up an interview at Spikeball headquarters uh, down in the West Loop in Chicago, and yeah, we traveled there, me and Andrew, Monday morning. Andrew helping me on the production side. Awesome, awesome, awesome office space. It's the classic, you know, new trend with shared spaces where from the outside, completely unassuming brick building. And then on the inside, there's this like loft you go up and there's beanbag chairs and there's ping pong tables. And it's everything a kid like me could dream of <laughs> in this modern evolving workplace. In the interview, we talked about you know, Chris's background, uh, how he ended up creating Spikeball, coming from that photojournalism degree, his lack of real business experience before that, and how he kind of tried out on the run. We also talked about that trend in workplaces, uh, these shared spaces such as WeWork, areas such as the West Loop in Chicago. We had to touch on Shark Tank and the deal that never went through with Damon John before wrapping it up, talking about where he sees Spikeball going where he wants it to go, how it's now being used by NFL and NBA teams as a fun way to improve hand-eye coordination and 
uh, a way to try to not get hurt. I found that fascinating. I never even knew that. That's a story in of itself. But yeah, super awesome conversation with an even better guy in Chris. Definitely was a fun one. Before I got to that, though, I had to touch on the big news of the week. Of course, College Gate, this whole scheme by Rick Singer, this guy out in California who is using his nonprofit to accept bribes pretty much to get the rich and famous, their kids into colleges that those kids didn't exactly deserve to get into. So I brought on Amelia Graber-Lipperman, my big sister, who's been working as a college advisor in Boston with high schoolers for the last two years, studied at Boston University, studied higher education, currently working on her graduate degree. And we had a really, really interesting conversation about this whole thing, how it's really enlightened the world, uh, America specifically, to the college system in the United States, and how this conversation is not really going away anytime soon. If you're not as interested in that part of the podcast, feel free to skip ahead to about 20 minutes. Me and my sister talk for about 15 minutes or so and change. Um, But yeah, that's definitely something I'm going to be watching. We're going to be watching at Unplugged as uh, this whole College Gate scandal keeps rolling out because I think it's really important. I think it's an important topic to talk about that goes under the radar all too often. Just looking at the website before we get into it, Key and Peel bracket. It's up. We're determining the best Key and Peel sketch of all time. We created a 64 sketch bracket. I watched all 298 sketches all over again, along with some help from Ethan Four and some other folks on the Unplugged staff. Yeah, it was one of my favorite shows when it was on TV. The goal is to get it in front of Jordan, in front of Keegan. I want to see what they think deserves to win it all. So start using hashtag Key and Peel bracket. Let's get this thing bumping. And you can vote in all of our regions. On the website, we're going to be moving on to the round of 32 by the end of the week. Also, Kareem Nurani wrote about the movie Leave No Trace, why he thinks it was the best movie of 2018. Ben Foster starring as a veteran, Iraqi veteran with PTSD and the ramifications it has on his daughter. Also, Terry Hortzman making his debut for us, writing about Stefan Marbury and the last two decades of Timberwolves fandom. What happens if Stefan Marbury never leaves? And the team gets that dynamic duo of KG and Stefan. Uh, Terry really offering us that perspective from up north in Minneapolis. Finally, I'm super excited to bring you the second episode of The Hot Take Show, hosted by Andrew Fenichel. After our conversation with Chris on Monday, we went downtown. We took the L over from the West Loop to Millennium Park, to The Bean. We were asking the good people of Chicago, is a hot dog a sandwich? We got some great, great answers with that. Also, the featured panelists, Peter Warren and Ben Kerwin. I can't reveal what their hot takes are. I can't reveal who won because you're going to have to watch the show itself. Promotional material will be coming out soon. And the actual episode will be coming out next week. Probably around Friday or so. We'll, we'll have to see. More information come out on that. As always, you can follow me on Twitter at ByNateGL. That's B-Y-N-A-T-E-G-L. You can follow Unplugged on social media at Unplugged. That's U-N-P-L-U-G-G underscore D. And as always, log on to the website at powderbluemedia.com. Now, on to the rest of the show. But first, our theme composed by the one and only Jerry Lee.
Before we get into Chris Ruder and that spike ball interview, I had to bring this up on the podcast this week because it's just too culturally relevant and it's so important to what we're trying to do at Unplugged and everything I stand for with the GL Review. We have to talk about College Gate. And I'm bringing on my older sister, Amelia Graber Lipperman, making her podcast debut. She works as a college advisor in Boston. Amelia, how, how's, how's it going in Beantown? It's good. Feeling very positive on the whole. It's how are fair. you doing? How's the weather in Chicago? I'm just saying, 60 degrees and rainy, it's a start. It's a start. Spring it's is coming. Not a, it's not a polar vortex. <laughs> no more polar vortex. So, yeah, just to give some background on CollegeGate. So, this guy, Rick Singer, set up this nonprofit, Edge College and Career Network, essentially, in theory, letting, helping kids get into their college with the college admissions process. There's all sorts of programs and people, specialists out there uh, doing things like this. Um, Turns out, though, the guy for the last seven years has taken $25 million in bribes. It's been a lot of celebrities, bankers, just high-profile people paying this guy. Mm -hmm. Lots of business people. Um, He was taking the bribes under his foundation. Yeah, it was disguised as a nonprofit, which was ironically to help set up scholarship funding for students in need of such scholarships. Super crazy. Yeah. Yeah. Drain the swamp. But um, Drain the swamp. yeah, so there's these two testing centers, too. One in Houston, one in L.A., where the Edge College and Career Network was located. Um, the testing centers, he was, Singer was paying off the people to falsify the tests that these kids were taking. People, some of these celebrities and, you know, rich people were flying their kids out to Houston just to take these exams. Some of the people named in this include Felicity Huffman, Lori Laughlin. You've probably seen their names thrown around a lot. And... They were named in this FBI Operation Varsity Blues. Um, Which sounds like a movie. (laughs) Man. (laughs) You just (laughs) repeat. To the listeners, we we had some technical difficulties before, so we're kind of (laughs) re-recording. I tried to help you out. (laughs) Yeah, same jokes and everything. It's cool. It's cool. Um, Yeah, and before I also named, I did end up looking when uh, uh, the movie Varsity Blues came out. Four days before I was born. Fun fact, January 15th, still, 1999. I remember it so clearly. Yeah, you were three. Um, <laughs> I, was, I was three years old. But I mean, hey, talking about movies in the, the acting industry, I mean, Huffman and Laughlin, both actors, I mean, their name is being dra- dragged through the muck right now. And they're losing Absolutely. sponsors and deals left and right. Nobody so, trusts I mean, Becky anymore from Full House. It's <laughs> Laughlin's character. And Fuller House. Um, Fuller just House. looking at this, though, Amelia, I mean, obviously, with your experience studying education, higher education in college, undergrad BU, and pursuing your graduate degree, uh, what were your initial reactions to this whole thing? Yeah, um, I think that I wasn't surprised. And um, I don't say that in like a happy, like, oh, um, I got I, it. Like, yeah, it's like not like, like a, oh, I predicted this, like, like, whatever, it's nothing to, like, it's just, I'm very saddened, obviously, um, it really does impact my work. And I think like the integrity of how I have conversations surrounding college admissions to my own um, students that I college advise here in the city. But um, just in general, I wasn't surprised. Um, the idea that a bunch of super, like super rich people were leaping at this opportunity to get their child into a school in any way, shape or form possible that they could, you know, ever wants to do right by their children. But this extreme that we're talking about is just so, 
it's like ethically mind boggling, but by the same token, like I, I just was not surprised at all when this news broke, like admissions is really opaque. Um, I think people are skeptical of it. They have a right to be skeptical of it and stuff like this is just fuel for the fire. So um, yeah, I guess my takeaway is not really surprised, kind of disgusted. Yeah, absolutely. And just to draw a distinction, because I mentioned it when we were talking before, like, I find there's often a mob mentality that you'll find on Twitter, Facebook, other social yeah, media. Absolutely. But mm -hmm. um, there's a big difference between, you know, the unfair practices of the rich, you know, like, let's say USC, for example, the some super rich alum who's an actor or whatever, knows the president of USC and is just like, hey, you know, you're going to let in my kid, right? Wink, wink, deal, a kid gets in. You know, there's a difference between there being an unfair system in that regard and outright cheating like these people are doing, right? And like bribery and th these are felonies. These are real yeah. actual crimes. And this I guy- I saw the word singer, racketeering in an article and I had to look up what that meant. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But it is racketeering. That's the it thing. And um, I thought it was I like think a it's an thing. It's an important distinction to draw among this whole muck because, you know, we're seeing on social media, we often do that. It's like once the story gets going, it just goes and goes and facts are kind of lost along the way. But it's not like, again, can we lose some faith in this whole process? Absolutely. And we deserve to. Um, but it's not like every single rich person is, you know, doing these highly illegal things just to scheme their kids into college, right? Yeah, no, you're completely right. There is no possible way that the 1% has some kind of control over like, like not everyone's committing crimes to get their child into college, no matter how much the money the family has. But I do think what's most important to recognize is, and this often gets mislabeled as some kind of achievement gap, where people from certain backgrounds just don't do as well as people from other backgrounds, because they're not succeeding academically. No, that's only like the tip of the iceberg. It really is a massive opportunity gap. And what people need to recognize is that for some students, uh, walking into college is kind of a breeze. It's a walk in the park and preparing for college your whole life. You're being prepared from college, like the moment you step foot into your kindergarten classroom. But for many students, um, first generation, low income, people of color, and these identities in our country often intersect. It's an intersectional thing. Um, these are people, you know, who don't even have the opportunity to do SAT prep classes after school. They don't have uh, someone who can look over their college essay. Maybe they had to hand write their college essay because there's no computer at home or like the electricity bill hasn't been paid for. Um, maybe their first language is in English. Maybe they're new to the country. It just all depends. So yeah, there are a lot of really wealthy kids out there whose families have not committed federal felonies to get them into school and they are there by their own merit. But we do need to, you know, take a step back and recognize College is supposed to be a meritocracy. You're supposed to get mm -hmm. in on your talent, yeah. but certain people have more capacity to build up their inherent talents and innate abilities because of the opportunities that they're given. Like, I'm sure you remember just as well as I do, like I needed help with my homework. Mom was home and she could help mm -hmm. me. Like Absolutely. she picked me up from and she's, she, she's, uh, 
you know, has uh, both a bachelor's degree and a uh, degree. A law law. degree. Like, she's a very accomplished person. We have two parents with um, multiple advanced degrees. Um, We went to a high school that offered SAT prep. We went to a high school that offered like over a dozen AP classes, I'm pretty Mm -hmm. sure. And I know me, uh, our other brother, Jacob, we all took advantage of these like activities that were offered and the um, support that we got and all these resources, all these extracurriculars we could build into our resume. So we were advantaged in that sense. Our parents did not bribe our college admissions offices by any sense of the word to um, enable us to get into our universities that we ultimately attended. But just we had a leg up from day one. So it's, yeah. yeah, the opportunity gap is really a huge Thing here and I know it's not directly related to what we're experiencing right now in the news I know that um, Lori Laughlin's uh, payment method to get her daughters into USC is far different from what I'm saying but at the end of the day it does boil down to the principle of the thing that some people are more right. equal than others in our society so and and I think that there's by no means does this whole scandal mean we can't talk about this unfair system and can't approach it Mm-hmm. I absolutely think this is a great lens to have this difficult conversation. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's just, I think it's really important to distinguish fact and narrative along the way, because I just think it's very easy to get swept up in all this. I will also add on, I mean, obviously you know this and you're the one who studied this, but um, I mean, A, there's something to be said for social capital, right? The idea that like, connections, I mean, kids can, if, you, if you can develop it, absolutely. Yeah, like if you can walk into freshman year of college and that summer you don't even have to apply to anything because it's like, what do you know? Your dad or mom or someone knows, hey, this person's looking for, you know, some help over the summer and owes me a favor. Like you're doing this. And it's like, okay, great. Versus like, what about someone who's coming to college who's on full financial aid and they really want to do an unpaid internship, but they want to really, you know, work at whatever company over the summer, but they're only offering unpaid internships. And that's just not feasible at all. Now, we are lucky to see like unpaid internships are kind of going down the route of being characterized as illegal. Um, and they're starting to slowly fade. But it's still, it's it's still absolutely present. And it's still going to be there. It's not going anywhere yeah. for the time being. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, building up your, I, I want to use the word clout for being selected for something, whether it's an elite college decision, whether it's going into your first job. Um, People can take advantage of things differently. People can have the capacity to take advantage of things differently. Um, And I do think that you actually are leading up to the point of like some colleges such as the ones implicated in the scandal like Yale and Stanford and USC, these are all schools that families find to be really desirable because of the network that you can build up and because of the social yeah, absolutely. you can accrue at these places. Um, I do want to bring up to kind of wrap up this whole thing. Mm-hmm. I was talking with my roommate. This kind of tr- touches on the, you know, the unfair, there's a difference between unfair versus cheating. So Peter brought up the example, let's say an alum at Northwestern, right? Let's say an alum builds a $20 million building that benefits the Beanin, the music school. And oh, that's going to benefit. a nice view, right? Yeah. So, oh, okay, man, there's I... already some nice buildings built, but let's just say, I have you know, a new studio point. or something, right? And that building is going to benefit, you know, professors. That building is going to benefit students for years to come. And, and yet, let's say their kid is kind of average, you know, not exactly 
the level of the school in terms of getting in, but not like a total slouch, you know, should this kid be allowed to get into the school? Cause there's like kind of this wink, wink agreement from the donor. Right. But like, do is, is it fair? Absolutely not. But can you condemn the school for letting a kid like this in just in this example? Yeah, no, at this juncture, I don't think you can. Um, you know, I'm in a legal studies class right now in higher education. And I mean, I'm just gonna be super honest with you. I have such senioritis. We might have covered this and I've just completely forgotten. I have a midterm that's due next week. I should probably really be reviewing all of my cases. So to all of you listening, I'm sorry, I might be making a completely inaccurate legal statement. But no, I don't think it is illegal. And that kind of practice is something that um, I don't think can be quite compared to the felonies that are coming out of the woodwork right now in our college gate scandal. Um, because, you know, a lot of really storied institutions, such as your own Northwestern, has a huge draw. Um, Harvard, which is my friendly neighbor just across from the river, um, they have a pretty well known, it's like an open secret, their Z list. It's for all the athletes, it's for all the legacy kids, the donor kids, the ones who are friends with the dean of the College of Arts and Sciences, like all these people who really, again, this is supposed to be a meritocracy, but at the end of the day, there are kind of competing and maybe um, corrupting factors that can influence an admissions team's decision. And maybe the person reading um, your application, again, uh, large universities especially, they read regionally. So there's an admissions director for certain regions and they are familiar with the schools in the region and they read for the kids from the region. But ultimately, even if that person makes a really well-intentioned decision and says, I really don't feel comfortable admitting this um, so-called uh, slouch kid, even though their grandfather made $10 million donation to Beeman or whatever, um, ultimately it does go up to the board of admissions to make the final call. So if they're in touch with the president, they're in touch with the dean of some college and that person is saying, you have to admit this kid, like your job is on the line or like something else is on the line. The stakes are so high. And it's like, at the end of the day, like it's not illegal. And people really do feel that pressure, I think, to admit these kids. Um, and, you know, colleges all over the country are starting to close and it's a shrinking industry in the sense that the college going population is becoming a lot smaller. These are like just statistical um, facts and people need money. You need money to keep your institution alive. And I think people really love their institutions to the point where they're so blinded by that love, they can go to great lengths to kind of corrupt that love and turn it into something that has produced a really inequitable system today. So, um, but I do not think it is illegal under law in the United States of America that for someone to accept a donation as like a back door into the university. I don't know. I just, I do wonder though, like in an example, like again, this being an example is completely hypothetical, but yeah, like, yeah. let's say the admissions office says, no, sorry, not getting in. Sorry for your kid. Like would that set a precedent or would that admissions officer just gets fired and then we're back to square one because, oh, I can just, president's like, oh, I can just get another admissions uh, person who will follow what I say, you know, like, I don't know if there is a way to set a new precedent. And this is just ideal world that it is a meritocracy and you don't take donations and your school is subsisting. Like we would have to though, I think reinvent the entire um, higher education system in the United States of America for this to be possible because I mean, the schools need money. 
the schools have very high operational costs. You know, you have the garage, it's such a beautiful facility, but like something's got to build that and one kid's tuition isn't going to build that. So getting these donations to be able to provide these wonderful opportunities for your students, it doesn't just appear out of thin air. It's not happening in a vacuum. So I, I don't know. I don't know how you would set a precedent. Uh, I don't know. I think colleges really do genuinely want to keep their institution afloat. It is a business. It really is a business. I think that's something people don't want to think of college as, but it's an industry and it's a business. Um, the entire institution of higher education relies on money. So it's a nonprofit, but is it, you know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Well, we'll be following College Gate and Operation Varsity Blues in the following weeks. I guess I have weeks. to watch Varsity Blues. Yeah, get the reference. The FBI are fun nowadays. Thanks, Amelia. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks for having me. I'm glad I got to make my debut. I'm here with Chris Ruder, the CEO and founder of Spikeball. Chris, how are you doing today? I'm well. How are you, Nate? Doing pretty well. Doing pretty well. I had to ask to start this off because I've had this debate for years with friends back home. Which is better, Spikeball or Can Jam? <laughs> I'm a I'm a bit biased. Yeah. Um, okay. uh, I understand the Can Jam guys are lovely people, mm -hmm. and tons of people love their product. Mm -hmm. um, but I have a lot more fun with my own product. So, yeah. um, trying to be as uh, uh, what's the word uh, as polite as possible. <laughs> <laughs> so I am curious. Do you know the people over at Can Jam? Um, I do not, but a decent amount of our employees have met them at different mm -hmm. trade shows and conferences over the years. Okay. Um, from what I understand, it's two guys from, I think, upstate New York. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, from what I can tell, they're doing pretty well. Yeah. Because I'm just curious if you guys would ever do like a company softball game or if maybe like, you know, you could do like a <laughs> best of three where like what you guys play like can jam and then spike ball and then a third game to determine, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It'd be, it'd be interesting to I'm see just, what came, yeah, but shooting ideas out for you. We guys, of course would win. I mean, there's no, <laughs> but it'd be interesting nonetheless. Yeah. Um, so start off. Thanks so much for talking to us. Uh, I thought your story is really awesome from everything I've read. Um, I met Chris when he came to the garage to talk to us in an entrepreneurship class and yeah, he's had quite a wild journey. So to start off, I mean, big thing I connected with, of course, you studied journalism undergrad at Marquette, right? Yep. Yeah. And so we, when we talked at the garage, you told me that your original dream was to work as a photographer for National Geographic, right? Yes. And you realized how difficult that would be until, uh, yeah, well, you realized how difficult it would be just the monetization of photographs and how competitive National Geographic was. Do you think there's anything about getting a degree in journalism that affected everything that's happened since in terms of like, do you find yourself applying a journalistic mindset to how you deal with Spikeball and other business ventures? Yeah, I mean, there, there's a lot in there, but, you know, a lot of what a lot of my time at Spikeball has been on the marketing side mm -hmm. and a lot of marketing is telling the story. Um, so you'll notice that a lot of our marketing is not of models that we've hired or of situations that we've fabricated or of, you know, trying to make sure everything is pristine and perfect. Uh, we go out and document um, what's happening in the real world, uh, very similar to what a journalist and or photojournalist would do. 
Um, so I do think um, a lot of my, you know, and to be clear, when I studied photojournalism, I was studying documentary mm-hmm. uh, photojournalism. Um, and a lot of our, yeah, content today, the, the term is user-generated content, and most of the stuff that you'll see us putting out is what other people have posted. You know, you're here in our office, and I saw you peeking at some of our photos we've got mm-hmm. hanging up. We didn't take any of those. Mm-hmm. Those were taken by players, and they just do a fantastic job of showing what the community about is about, what the sport is about. Um, so, yeah, and then to answer your question on you know, loosely, you, you uh, asked about, you know, journalism um, careers. I think there's a million more directions you can go today than mm-hmm. in 1997 when yeah. I graduated. Um, yes, National Geographic was the dream, and I'd imagine to this day that's probably the ultimate dream of most uh, people who are into photojournalism. Um, but I remember there was also a job opening for a staff photojournalist at the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel, which is a great pop- uh, publication, um, but you know nothing uh, you know that has the impact of a National Geographic, a New York Times, et cetera. And I got wind that there were over 700 applicants mm-hmm. for one opening. <laughs> and those applicants were people who had been in the industry for 20 plus years. They lived all over the world. And when I realized like, okay, I was pretty good, but I wasn't at the top of my game, mm-hmm. uh, even amongst college students, I kind of realized like, holy smokes, like it's going to take a lot more to get into this. And I liked it, but I guess time has shown that I didn't love it enough to say, you know what, I'm going to double down and really try and get after it. Um, yeah. Yeah. I know I threw a lot at you there, but, um, I mean, just touching on, uh, this journalism aspect. So you said when you talked to us at the garage that you had no real business experience before you got into spike ball. Um, you worked marketing jobs at companies such as live nation. Uh, but I'm just curious too, as someone who I was never all on board with the just, you know, write for the high school newspaper, get into journalism school, uh, and then write for the paper there. And then like you end up at the New York times, you know, I think a lot of people see it as just this straight shot. Mm -hmm. So, I'm curious what you think, because, again, a lot of my journalism teachers are like alluding to when you're writing for The New York Times or writing for them. (laughs) So I'm just curious, like how you feel about looking back at, you know, uh, studying journalism in college. Like, is there do you think journalism students can be a little more entrepreneurial with their mindset or just with their approach to school and jobs past that? Yeah, absolutely. And just to clarify, I was not, uh, I didn't have any marketing jobs with Live Nation or any of my other past jobs. It was all sales. Okay. Uh, Yeah. So pure sales. Um, So, yeah, I'm I'm a a, a perfect example of your college degree doesn't necessarily dictate what you're going to do with your life. Mm -hmm. Um, And I'm a firm believer in that. So some people, you know, get a degree in engineering and they're engineers for the rest of their lives. And you know what? Hallelujah. They were able to discover early on what they loved, they knew what they wanted to do, and they went ahead and did it. And just like some uh, people will get degrees in journalism, and they'll do that for for their lives. Some people will get degrees in journalism and will wind up dentists. (laughs) Some people will will get degrees in dentistry and become journalists. Um, So I think one thing that a lot of people are guilty of, and I think I probably was too when I was a student, was thinking that your degree is going to dictate what happens the rest of your life. Mm -hmm. Um, I was actually clicking around on LinkedIn the other day and uh, stumbled on this profile. 
This woman is uh, head of analytics at a pretty well-known technical firm, or uh, yeah, technical firm here in Chicago. Uh, she has a degree in sculpture. <laughs> she has a minor in marketing. Yeah. She's maybe five, six years out of college, and she's the head of, uh, I think, business intelligence or something like that. Mm-hmm. That's fantastic. Mm-hmm. So I don't know how, but I'm sure if she were sitting in this room, we could ask, how, does, how did your studying of sculpture you know, she has a BFA um, yeah. in sculpture. How did that help you uh, in your current role? And mm-hmm. I'm assuming she's got a rock solid answer. Um, so, you know, I'm not one to give unsolicited advice, but mm-hmm. I'm going to. Don't get too hung up on what your degree is. And yeah. there's going to be, you know, especially today, you know, versus 20 plus years ago, um, there's so many more opportunities of what you can do with it. And, um, you know, some people start as journalists and wind up running publications, you know, Mm -hmm. as a business, they're not the ones actually doing the writing or reporting. Those are two wildly different skill sets related. Um, but you know, and especially, you know, with podcasts, like what you guys are doing, just look at any of the top podcasts today. And I'd imagine most of the people running those don't have much business experience. They have a true passion for wanting to find and tell fantastic stories. And they've in turn become fantastic marketers, right? Mm -hmm. They've found an audience for those. Um, But as far as classical training around, you know, how many of them have MBAs or degrees in Mm -hmm. business? I'd imagine it's fairly low. Yeah, I remember reading an interview with Bill Simmons about a year after he launched The Ringer. And he was asked, like, what's the most underrated aspect of running a business? And he said he could have never prepared for the amount of HR work that, uh, cause I mean, he graduated with undergraduate journalism, but mm-hmm. he just never knew what it was like to manage so many people, which he didn't really have to worry about at ESPN, which is this huge company. Yep. And I'd imagine during the early days of the ringer, he was the guy doing HR. Yeah. And then at some point he's like, wait, this is not where my, uh, I have no expertise in this arena. Mm-hmm. Let me find someone that's smarter or better at this, whether they be inside my own company or find a third-party company. Um, you know, we're, um, we, we do that all the time. It's like, yeah. is this something we want to develop an expertise in, or are there other people that know better than us? Nine times out of ten, there are people that know better than us, and we'll engage with them in some fashion. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Going to get into Spikeball and, you know, Shark Tank and all that great stories in a second. But um, I I did want to ask to just like kind of reflecting on that journalism background and uh, your college experiences, then going on to work in sales before starting Spikeball. If you could go back to college or go back to those early days when you worked all those sales jobs, would you change anything in terms of your route? Would you change the staying up till 2, 3 a.m. in the morning uh, after working a full job and having kids? Uh, and then staying up all that night to work on Spikeball. Would you change any of it or no? Uh, Spikeball stuff, I don't think I would change much. I mean, of course, we've had a couple big, big hiccups that in hindsight, you know, if I would have done something a little different, then yes. But, um, you know, failure is one of the best teachers out there. Um, and there's a better line out there. (laughs) It says that a little more succinctly, but um, it's a fantastic teacher. So... Of all the headaches we've had, as odd as it sounds, I'm glad that we had them. Um, Now, with that said, if we're looking pre-Spikeball, like during my sales jobs and that, the thing that I do wish I had done a little differently was found companies 
or during the interview process and the research process of where I was going to apply for a job, do a little more, more homework around the culture that the company mm-hmm. brings. So I worked for some really cool companies. I worked for the Xbox division of Microsoft. Yeah. I worked for Live Nation. Back in the day, Monster.com was like the cool Big company. Um, while they all had really cool consumer-facing brands, the groups that I was a part of, the culture just wasn't all that strong. And... Um, yeah, I was paid well. I did well. And, um, but you know, after I left work, that was, I was kind of, you know, come five o'clock, I was pretty much done and, you know, I'd give it my all every day, but it wasn't something I really enjoyed. So I think had I done a little more homework on finding companies, uh, that had strong cultures, um, my time there would have been a little happier. Yeah. I mean, diving in just because you talked about culture, uh, you talk a lot about the culture of your company. That was a big thing you brought up to us when you were talking at the garage and some other interviews I've read online by now. Are you currently up to 25 full-time employees? Uh, 24. 24. Okay. Um, I mean, what would you say is the most important thing you try to instill in your workplace every day? Um, word we and a lot of companies use is autonomy. Mm-hmm. Um, if there was any way to measure it, I would imagine we'd be near the top. Um, you know, we've a lot of our employees, this is their first job out of college. Yeah. And of our 24 employees, everybody lives all over the country. So, you know, we're here at Spikeball headquarters. Mm-hmm. There's literally two of us here today. And that's kind of a normal day for us. So we've got a lot of employees that, you know, some are seasoned, some are fresh out of college, and most are working from home. And they are deciding what they're doing every day. You know, mm-hmm. it's not me or some other manager kind of wagging a finger saying, uh, you need to do this today. Now, you know, sometimes we'll need to do that a little bit. But for the most part, you know, we were just in uh, Breckenridge a week, 10 days ago. We do retreats twice a year. Yeah. So we did, we did one there. And we spent a, you know, when we do the retreats, we want it to be 90% fun, 10% work. Mm-hmm. During the 10% work, we spent a couple hours, you know, sitting in this like giant living room, kind of half the people are in their pajamas and socks. Mm -hmm. Some people are regularly dressed and super casual environment. But we're talking about a uh, five-year strategic plan. And that was not a report that me and our COO or a few of us drew up in some dark room and then delivered to everybody. Mm -hmm. That document was the culmination of gathering feedback from all 24 employees asking everybody the same question and making sure everybody's fingerprints are all over that document. Um, So now when it's time to execute that document, everybody feels a certain level of ownership and they know that, wait, 2023, it's not, you know, it's not five years away. It's actually four years and nine months away. So I want to make, we've Mm -hmm. got a, we've got a timer, a ticker going here. Um, And we're not just forcing it on somebody. This is something that we all created together. And it is up to each individual to understand what their role is in making sure that we all can hit these goals. And it's, yeah, just giving them that freedom, that autonomy to decide on how they are going to achieve that. That, I think, is a pretty rare thing. That's something that I've really never experienced during my corporate days. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that's one reason why we have such an engaged uh, group of employees yeah. is because they get to decide. And of course, if they need help or if we see they're veering off the wrong way or something, we may tap them on the shoulder and say, hey, can you help me ex- help me understand uh, what it is you're trying to accomplish here? And, you know, it's definitely a two-way road. Um, but, 
Yeah, that that autonomy is. Mm-hmm. You know, I hate it when people tell me what to do. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely hate it. And I think most people do, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that was a huge part of the attraction of starting my own company. Um, just having that ability to decide what I'm going to do, how I'm going to do it, and when I'm going to do it. Mm-hmm. And giving a, uh, somebody that has just graduated college that amount of control and freedom, I think, is an incredibly attractive thing. Um, yeah. And, you know, we've been in business for, we've had full-time employees for about six years now, and we've literally had one person quit. Mm-hmm. That tells me we're doing something right. Yeah, um, I mean, I think it's like part of it too. I talking about this, a lot of college kids, first job, sorry, kids first job out of college. And mm-hmm. I feel like it's interesting with this whole, you know, trend and wave of shared spaces, startup incubators, such as the garage on our campus, as you've seen awesome space, there's all this free coffee we were drinking this yep. morning. <laughs> and, um, but also like incubators, like we work the shared spaces that are everywhere. Um, I was at my uncle's company over the summer, like for the first time for a week, just checking that out. And it's definitely a whole different vibe to it. Mm-hmm. Um, do you think th- the other funny thing I did want to point out too, is, uh, when me and Andrew first walked in to, you know, this area, it's like from the outside, you know, Oh, it's just another brick building. And then you walk in and there's like <laughs> this awesome loft space and these awesome rooms and always have to have the food coming in and everything. But do you think this trend as, you know, the millennial generation and the generation after it starts moving into the workforce, um, do you think that's just going to become the new norm that traditional like corporate workspaces are kind of going out of style? Um, I think the trend is going that way. Um, you know, the big companies, they're not dumb. You know, mm-hmm. if you look at how many Fortune 500 companies have moved from the suburbs to downtown Chicago, yeah. They're going there because they're finding it's hard to, you know, McDonald's, right? They used to be in Oak Brook. They've been in Oak Brook forever. It's a super long commute if anybody wants to live downtown to get out to commute or to get out there. And I believe they realized, wait, it's kind of hard to get millennials and Gen Z and those folks to want to commute, you know, that that want to live in Oak Brook. Um, So they moved. Uh, Walgreens has moved a bunch of jobs down here. Wilson Sporting Goods moved down here. So um, they're smart. You know, fish where the fish are is the line, and that's what they're doing. Um, And I do think they will start to, um, yeah, I haven't been inside any of their offices, but I'm imagining they're beautiful spaces. Um, You know, you've seen literally half of this building. When we're done here, I'll show you. Once we go through another door (laughs) here, there's another seven or eight companies, (laughs) and it's a beautiful space. Yeah. I, I don't know what it is. Uh, I love that I don't have to take an elevator to get to my office. Interesting. Uh, I don't know what that is, but almost all of my other corporate jobs, I had to take an elevator. Mm-hmm. And there's something about being in that tin box, if you will, <laughs> um, that just sucked a little bit out of me every day. Um, so this is a pretty, you know, those of you that, you know, actually none of you can see what, what kind of room we're in right now, but it's, it's a hundred year old brick building in the Fulton market neighborhood of Chicago, uh, four stories. And it's a wide open space with a bunch of glass and a lot of light and a timber, timber structure. Um, and I love it. It's super casual and, um, uh, yeah, I don't want to have to go back to high rise, uh, buildings. 
that's my personal preference. Yeah. Um, maybe I'm in the minority and I'm not trying to rag on uh, high-rise offices. Uh, a lot of them are beautiful. They have a much better view than we do. Um, but I do think that this more casual environment is the trend. And, um, you know, if, if spike ball is any indication of our 24 employees, there's literally only three of us maybe that visited an office uh, yeah. ever. Yeah, Most of them are at of home it. or at yeah. coffee shops. We have an employee, Megan, uh, she goes to, you know, I'm not sure if you're aware, Capital One, the bank, mm-hmm. uh, they have these free workspaces. They have two or three of them here in Chicago, and that's like her go-to place. She doesn't pay a nickel, and yeah. they, that, that's what they're going for. So it, it's it's wildly different. I know I had jobs where if I, my butt was not in my desk at by 8 a.m., I was in yeah. trouble. Like I'd show up literally at 8.03, and I'd get a sideways look from the boss, and what a terrible environment. <laughs> Nobody wants that. Yeah. No, I just think it's super funny because I know like my uncle is probably around your age and he was working with a lot of 20 somethings who were right out of college in a WeWork in Brooklyn. Mm-hmm. And uh, my grandparents were always like, they couldn't get over the fact that they catered lunch every day from like <laughs> different places and the fact that dogs were allowed to be in the office. This was like amazed my grandparents. So yeah. It's just funny, like seeing how popularized that kind of trends become. What a fantastic trend, right? <laughs> like, I love that. Um, I love that there's food on site. Some people will take a little more cynical look that says, okay, the big companies will offer all this food so you never leave your desk and they just want you to work harder and harder. Mm-hmm. And that may be the case for some. Um, but as long as employees have the option to do what they want, uh, you know, I'll get notes from employees randomly, like on a Tuesday at like 11 a.m., that says they just got back from a tennis match. Yeah. I love that. Like they're controlling their own time. Mm-hmm. I know that their work is getting done because I know them. You know, they're not sitting. A lot of people also ask me like, oh, well, you know, if the employees aren't sitting next to you, like, how do you know they're actually getting their work done? Um, and I'm like, all right, well, let's just pick a random employee. Let's say Hadas. She's the woman that runs customer service for us. Uh, all the customer service tickets need to be replied. If she's sleeping in every day watching Judge Judy and just hanging (laughs) out with friends, customer service tickets are going to back up and we're going to know what's up. But we don't need to peer over her shoulder because we know her. We trust her. We know that she wants to do A-plus work, and she does. Mm -hmm. Um, What a fantastic thing. Yeah. Um, So, yeah, just getting more into spike ball, I mean, the creation of it. Interestingly enough, both read online and heard from you that Spikeball has been around since the 80s, 90s. I think I saw an interview. You said you first played it in 1989. Mm-hmm. Um, so you played it when you were younger. Creator never issued a patent. And then you decided to bring the game back to life. Is there anything about the game back then that hooked you on it? Or, or was it more just you saw this as a business opportunity to make it global, make it bigger? The business opportunity was definitely secondary. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, it was a. Ri- it hasn't. I wouldn't necessarily say it's been around since the '80s. I'd say it's had two lives. Mm-hmm. So it was born in 1989. It's when it first came to the market, from what I understand. And I think it died in '91 or something like that. So it was only around for a very brief uh, moment. Yeah. Um, at the time, some of my friends bought it. Uh, Brad bought it. Brought it back to the neighborhood. And those friends were friends with my older brother, so they played a bunch. I was kind of the younger brother, so I wasn't really allowed to play with them. Mm-hmm. Uh, they didn't want me I know, messing with them. I'm an older brother. I know how that works. <laughs> little, little brother need not apply. Um, when I first really got the bug, though, was in 2004. I'm sorry, 2003, I believe it was. Me, 
those actual same friends, my brother went on a trip to Hawaii. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was me and my brother versus uh, these guys, Tim and Pat Kennedy, uh, who are also brothers. Um, and we played like for, I don't know, four or five days, uh, just like epic, just battle, you know, brothers versus brothers. Mm-hmm. And for the most part, my brother and I, you know, uh, we were never on the same team. You know, I was the younger brother. He was the older brother. He was way into sports. I really wasn't into sports. Yeah. We weren't all that tight when we were kids. Um, but playing uh, spike ball on that trip was the first time we'd actually competed together. Mm-hmm. Um, we were cheering each other on. We were rooting each other on, and that was something I'd never. He and I had never experienced together. It was it was a really nice thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so we were doing that. While just dominating Tim and Pat. Um, so, of course, they, they would agree with that if they were Trash here. talking even 10, oh, 20 years later. Tons of, yeah. Th- we still have this like game where like they were up, like we claim that the version today is like they were up 19 to 1 and we came back and beat them. But yeah. it's probably nowhere close to that. But mm-hmm. um, so <laughs> that is where, you know, that's where I really got hooked on the sport of round net. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, then the, the as we were playing, strangers would walk up and ask us about the game, like, hey, where can I get that? How do you play, et cetera? And that's when kind of the light bulb went off, like, huh, there's a bunch of people that are way into this. Mm-hmm. Um, I wonder if that's what it is, you know, when people say the marketplace is talking to you. That's what it was. So we went home from that trip and just talked about it for a couple of years. We didn't do anything, you know, everybody does that. Um, but eventually we started, you know, taking action and, you know, here we are today. Yeah. Um yeah, and the other thing, I mean, you mentioned it just then too, but I remember you said you were not really a sporty kid growing up. Um, so, I mean, I got to ask, how good would you say relatively you are at spike ball today and even back then? <laughs> um, so if you look at my email signature, it says okay. I'm one of the top-ranked players, uh-huh. and then it says parentheses in the top 10,000. <laughs> um, I think I'm in the top 10,000 nowadays, okay. but I may have even been bumped from that. So mm-hmm. um, I used to be really good. Um <laughs> when there were far fewer players. So, yeah. yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So you talk about, you know, knowing your consumer, this fact that you knew um, so many people were interested in the sport around net. And when you came to our class, you kind of on a whim preached how you guys use, sorry, not preached, but (laughs) talked about how you use jobs to be done theory. And I know that Neil and Billy loved that because our whole class was built off (laughs) jobs to be done theory. And, I always joke about it, and we have some write-ups and whatnot. Uh, there's a sign right next to my table in the garage that says hashtag JTBD. So I always joke that it's a cult, this whole Clayton Christensen's jobs to be done theory. But yep. how important, I mean, you said a lot of your employees or all of your employees have to have sales experience, right? Have to like really get to know the customer. Or mm-hmm. I mean, how important do you think that mentality or approach is? Um, so just to clarify, so we... All of our employees do take shifts at customer service, customer service. Okay, so answering yeah. tickets. And I think that's a great way for any company to make sure that, you know, even if you have a job in finance or in operations or whatever, where maybe you're pretty far from the customer, those customer service ticket sessions, uh, you know, get you close to the street and real fast. So you can get a mm. pretty good understanding of what's going on. Um as for jobs to be done, um, I am by no means an expert, but yeah. I absolutely <laughs> love it. Um, and um, there's a few employees that have, some have gone to some conferences or seminars to kind of learn it. Um, we've read some of the books. 
And, you know, Nick, who heads up marketing for us, he'll post every month or two some posts titled, you know, on Basecamp titled like consumer interviews. And then it's maybe four paragraphs of five different conversations he's had. And it's just fantastic insight um, where we all can kind of learn what he's learning. You know, one thing, one job we've learned that uh, our product offers is a way to help college athletes, you know, let's say you've recently graduated, mm-hmm. you were an athlete in college, you're not going pro, you still have that competitive drive, but there's a void. You can no longer play football or basketball, whatever it is. You can play in random leagues and stuff, but you're not going to be competing at the top of your game like maybe you were. Mm-hmm. But, you know, around that, the our, our sport is still so young, um, it's way easier to climb to near the top of it than it is any other established sport that's been around for a hundred years. So that's a job, you know, we're fulfilling that for a lot of Mm -hmm. quote, former collegiate athletes. Um, That's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Another one we're hearing from uh, parents and especially moms is I just want my kids to put down uh, the screens, get outside and play. Um, We're hearing from moms now that, Spike ball is a fantastic answer to that. Mm-hmm. Um, when families go camping, you go, you camp, you get to the campsite maybe at 5 p.m. You still have like three hours of sunlight. You set up camp, it takes you 30 minutes. What are you going to do? Oh, wait, spike ball. Mm-hmm. Like in general, it's a, a fantastic killer of downtime. Yeah. Like I have yet to come up with a catchy phrase about how it's <laughs> the, the anti-downtime or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> but you talk to any... Uh, coach out there of any sport we heard it from wrestling from basketball to volleyball to diving um they'll all go to these tournaments and it's an let's say it's an all-day-long saturday tournament you have so much downtime and Mm -hmm. the coaches want you to stay warm and you know kind of you know keep your blood flowing but more often than not the athletes are in the quarter just with their phone just kind of doing nothing coaches are now bringing sets with them and the players are having fun they don't realize that they're actually also working on their hand-eye coordination, on their agility. Um, we've noticed that a lot of strength and conditioning coaches for the NFL, the NBA, the NHL, mm-hmm. they're all bringing spike ball sets um, to training, uh, to practices, and they're not telling the athletes, hey, I'd like you to work on your hand-eye coordination or your agility or your reflexes. It's just like, hey, here's this fun game. Give it a shot. And that has resulted in the San Francisco 49ers playing mm-hmm. in the Minnesota Vikings. Uh, the Denver Nuggets posted a, a photo or a video on Instagram recently of like seven or eight of their players playing spike ball on the actual basketball court. Mm-hmm. Um, and we didn't really have much to do with that. That just kind of did it on its own. Yeah, it, it is funny because the first time you bring up like tournaments and everything, uh, the first time I played spike ball was at a cross country meet with my high school cross country team. <laughs> but then our coach actually banned it because someone got hurt. So <laughs> he said we weren't allowed to bring it to meets anymore. Um, it's funny you say that. We, uh, we're in talks. I won't name the team, but it's professional football, an NFL team. And uh, we're talking about doing a charity event with them. Mm-hmm. And I thought that they were going to have players come uh, actually play round net with us. And the, I'm talking to their PR woman, and she said, oh, no, 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 we don't, we don't want our players playing because they might get injured. And I, I didn't say anything, but I was like, wait, these guys are on an NFL, on a football field, yeah. cracking helmets, like <laughs> one of the most brutal sports out there, and they don't want their players playing round net, which mm-hmm. I scratched my head, but 
Yeah. Anyway. Um, no, and also building off that, uh, you often say like your product was a viral hit, but in the early goings, there were three groups you figured out were interested and you aggressively marketed towards. It was PE teachers, uh, youth groups, Christian youth groups, and Ultimate. And yep. I, of course, had to bring up Ultimate because I'm on the Northwestern men's Ultimate team. I love <laughs> it. I mean, I was just in Stanford last weekend at a tournament. Um, and I definitely feel like Spikeball and Ultimate were like perfect for each other, you know, just that counterculture vibe. Did you know anything about the culture of Ultimate or like had you ever played before you realized that it was so big in Spikeball and like, or have you like learned a lot since if you hadn't? Um, I've still never played a game of Ultimate really? <laughs> in my life, I'm embarrassed to say. Um, but I, we do share a lot of DNA. Mm-hmm. That was not by design. Um, you know, when those first, the first five years of the company, when I was, you know, running it on my own, um, we primarily only sold on spikeball.com. And every time an order would come through, I'd send an email, you know, telling the person out, you know, let's say they lived in, um, in San Francisco, not mm-hmm. far from Stanford. Um, I'd say, uh, hey, thanks for buying the set. Uh, I see you live in San Francisco. I used to live there. What a beautiful city. By the way, if you don't mind me asking, how'd you hear about Spikeball? Um, and that's how I initially identified those three groups. To answer your question on Ultimate, um, I heard a lot of people saying, oh, my buddy that plays Ultimate showed me about it, or I was at an Ultimate tournament and and I saw some people playing, or I noticed a general undercurrent of the theme of people were discovering it via Ultimate. Um, Shortly thereafter, we started getting emails from Ultimate uh, college players saying, hey, would you guys sponsor our team? what I could tell they really needed was just gas money for their yeah. tournaments. Uh, <laughs> I can, I can verify that. <laughs> um, so I don't know. It cost us maybe a couple hundred bucks. Um, we'd, we'd give them a couple hundred bucks. They'd put our logo on their Jersey. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what most sponsorships are. That's yeah. it. Logo on a Jersey and we'll give you some money. I went a step further and I said, all right guys, um, how many tournaments do you have in a typical season? And I don't know, it was maybe eight or nine or something like that. And let's say it was eight. I said, all right, guys, I'm going to ship you nine sets. One, you guys need to play at every single tournament, and you need to text me photos of you guys playing. This is before Instagram existed. Yeah. Um, so prove to me that you're playing. Just by playing, you'll be marketing for us. And by the way, give away one free set to your favorite opponent at yeah. every tournament. Um, and that, in hindsight, turned out to be pretty incredible because I knew we were going to the sport would be introduced to at least one new college every time. Um, but what I didn't realize was like how uh, impactful it is to receive something from more or less a stranger mm-hmm. that is saying, I'd like you to have this because I just enjoyed playing against you. Not because you were the best player, right? The best player yeah. always gets Such the an awards. Thing. And, <laughs> yeah, and I had no idea. Yeah. <laughs> um, like, I guess th- in hindsight, mm-hmm. I probably should have started playing ho- ho- Ultimate in high school <laughs> or something. Know. Maybe I would have, you know, I, I think I'd fit in well, but um, I've been to a bunch of ultimate tournaments and I see mm-hmm. the general vibe of ultimate tournaments. Everybody's very respectful. You know, of course, everybody wants to win and they're very competitive. But self-ref too. Self-ref. Um, and yeah, so it was not by design to follow that. It's just sort of a, yeah, I think just shared DNA is the, the best explanation I can give. See, I know you did your research on the sport enough because you're referring to it as ultimate. And most of my friends make fun of me when who don't play ultimate. Most of them, when I tell them, well, it's not actually frisbee; it's ultimate, <laughs> you know. But see, that's how I know you did your research. Uh, uh, I have become a <laughs> loose—I don't want to say expert—but I know a lot about trademarks. 
Yeah. Um, more than I wish I do. Uh, we talked about big issues in the past and um, a big issue we had early on forced me to learn a lot about trademarks. Mm -hmm. And, you know, a lot of people talk about the difference between Spikeball and Roundnet. Yeah. Um, Spikeball is a company that makes equipment for the sport of Roundnet. Round mm -hmm. A lot of people and myself included sometimes mess up and I say, oh yeah, I love playing Spikeball. Uh, you don't play Spikeball. Mm -hmm. um, and I learned a lot of this. I uh, met a woman named Mary Horwath. She was the uh, woman that coined the term inline skates for rollerblades. So she was the chief marketing officer for rollerblade back in the 80s when they were just huge. And they were getting ready. They had a lot of people that were using rollerblade uh, as a generic term. So she coined the term inline skates and um, she and I spoke a lot and she said, yeah, you guys need to create a new word. So mm -hmm. I came up with the word round net. Um, I talked with some attorneys from CrossFit. They're having a big trademark issue as well. They spend an ungodly amount of money defending their trademarks. Um, you know, it's a, there's a long history of big, big yeah. brands that have had to fight it. And uh, it's tricky, but I think we're, we're on the right side so far. Yeah, it could definitely be difficult, though, from a branding perspective, because most of the people you encounter, do they refer to it as I'm playing round net or do they say I'm playing spike ball? Most everybody says spike ball. The marketer yeah. in me loves that. But yeah. if I think of the growth of the sport and where I want things to be 20 years from now, we need round net to be mm -hmm. um, uh, the way people refer to it. And more and more people are. Uh, so we're definitely seeing a trend of it. Yeah. You know, just like 10 years ago when you'd say spike ball, nobody knew what the heck you were talking about. Mm -hmm. Right now, not many people know what um, round net is, but... It's definitely trending the right way. Yeah. So a big thing throughout this whole time and even right now, um, you just mentioned the sport of round net, right? And going back towards the beginning when, not the beginning, but when you were looking into investments, uh, more specifically, of course, I had to bring up Shark Tank because it was a great episode. Yep. Um, but a big dilemma was you really wanted to keep round net as a sport. You wanted that association with Spikeball. So Damon John, creator of FUBU, he gives you $500,000 for 20%. But turns out that was filmed seven months before the show actually aired. The deal falls through because he wanted to make, he had some friends at Marvel, right? And he wanted to make mm -hmm. a Spider-Man spike ball set. But you thought that would be too much associated with toys and that would kind of hurt the image of spike ball. Do you, do you, I'm assuming you think that was the right call, right? Yeah. I mean, in hindsight, you know, things have worked out really well for us, um, and yeah, the deal, the deal never closed. And I think a lot of people, including Damon, kind of look at uh, our product as just like a fun backyard game. And that's about it. Mm -hmm. um, and still to this day, you think? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. A lot of people do. Um, I can't tell you how many people I've met when they'll tell me how much they love it. And I'll say, oh, have you ever played in a tournament? And they're like, you have tournaments? Yeah. They have no idea. Um, so that's that's. Uh, that's something we need to tackle. Mm -hmm. And I would imagine 90 plus, well, 98% of people that have ever played around that have never played in a tournament. Yeah. Um, and they just have fun playing in the backyard. And that's what they want to, if that's what they want to do, then hallelujah, have fun. Yeah. <laughs> if we were just happy with that, then I think we could potentially run the risk of becoming a fad. Mm -hmm. um, you know, fidget spinner. They had a fantastic nine month run. <laughs> <laughs> they're done right yeah um now i don't know if they could actually turn it into a sport but who knows but um you know part of part of doing the tournaments and the sport uh was to avoid a fad but 
that's maybe 10% of it. 90%, which has been fantastic, is just seeing the community that is built around it. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, whether it's a tournament, a league, or a, a club at a college, um, just hearing the stories of the relationships that have been built. I've met numerous people that have met their spouse yeah. while playing. Um, numerous people that have done, um, you know, amazing, you know, raised, raised a lot of money for whatever the nonprofit is. Um, there was a tournament 48 hours ago in Denmark that had people from wow. all over Europe. There's a tournament in Belgium coming up in a little over a month that I think already has registrants from 13 countries. Um, I never would have thought that would happen in a million years. I figured, you know, you'd give me the 50 bucks, I'd ship you the box and mm-hmm. that would be it. Um, but I've learned that it can become so much more than that. Um, yeah, yeah, that's just been so incredibly gratifying. The the community aspect, there's definitely so many parallels to ultimate. Like I've met so many ultimate couples. (laughs) It's just such a big thing. Um, I do want to ask more about like legitimizing the sport, if you will, in air quotes and like get making those deals with ESPN. But Mm -hmm. before that, I do want to ask, because you mentioned when you came to the garage that, um, of course, Mark Cuban being a big Shark Tank guy and also the creator of GoPro was on that episode too. He was the guest shark. Um, and you thought those two guys were going to be the ones who were interested. Yep. So, And I know you said you were surprised when they both bowed out. So how do you think Spikeball changes? How do you think this whole thing changes if Cuban does invest? Um, I'd love to, you know, the optimistic view is, let's say that we did do the deal with him. Mm-hmm. Um I'd have access to uh, his brain power. And that was, regardless of who I did a deal with on the show, that was the main attraction. It was not the money. Um, you know, we've been profitable, you know, more or less since day one. And, uh, you know, of course, everybody would like some more money. But usually when you take more money, there's a price, uh, you know, that you have to pay for yeah. that. Um, so... If we had access to, you know, and I've talked to some other guys that have done deals with Mark Cuban on Shark Tank, and it sounds like the relationship is, I think something like you can send an email a week to him and he'll reply with, or maybe you send three bullets and he'll reply, but he, I think, replies to almost everybody on a weekly basis, which is just fantastic. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I have a feeling we'd still, hopefully we still would have gone in the same direction, but maybe it just would have been accelerated. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, like our, the first time we saw NBA players playing round net was about eight months ago. Mm-hmm. So had we done a deal with Mark Mavericks Cuban, would have been doing yeah, Mavericks would have been playing <laughs> years ago and that would have, you know, uh, traveled to who knows where, but, um, you know, I think the main reason the deal with Damon didn't happen is because, uh, we wanted to keep going the direction we were. Mm-hmm. He wanted to take it a wildly different direction and that just didn't. That, that I wasn't comfortable with that. Yeah. Um, so I, I don't have enough experience with Mark Cuban to know if he would have said, yeah, guys, you're killing it. Keep doing what you're doing. One thing he, they did cut out from the show that he said, um, he said, if and when you guys ever sell the franchise rights to a round net team in Dallas, call me. I'm in. Mm-hmm. So he was way more attracted to the sport than, than the, the product. actual product. Um, now we have not followed a model like the NBA, you know, where you do sell the franchise rights to a single market, who knows where we'll go. If we ever do go that route, then he will definitely be the first person I call. Um, but 
Yeah, I've talked to other people that have done deals with him, and they, they said, for the most part, it's been a, a largely positive thing. So I'd imagine mm-hmm. it would have worked well. Big thing with the Shark Tank, though, obviously, you had that like 7 million viewers or whatever, right? And, yeah. Um, obviously, great exposure in that regard. So I think I read it on Spikeball's website, you say 4 million players worldwide, um, national attorneys, you know, you have to qualify for uh, championships held on ESPN2. Do you think... Again, I'm going to compare it to Ultimate because that's, you know, my frame of reference right now. Mm-hmm. Um, do you think kind of like appearing on ESPN2 and every once in a while, like, do you think Roundnet has been legitimized as a sport in that regard? Or do you think it'll kind of remain in this realm of like ESPN8, the Ocho sports, you know, like the <laughs> dodgeballs and the frisbees of the world? Because a lot of my friends, Andrew here included, the person producing the podcast, would probably put Ultimate in that uh, bucket, you know? Yep. <laughs> Yeah, so it's a we're definitely in a murky spot right now, and you know, considering how long Ultimate's been around, I think mid seventies it yeah. was created or something like that. Um, the fact that we're being thrown in the same bucket as Ultimate is <laughs> a fantastic compliment, considering we've only had you know the company's been around eleven years, but we've only had full time employees for about five or six. I might have some uh, players on the team, uh, you know, criticize me for this <laughs> <laughs> for some of my comments. <laughs> um, but then there'll be others that will say. Um, you know, Roundnet is nipping at the heels of volleyball. Mm-hmm. And the, I've talked to plenty of people who see no reason why we're not going to be larger than them or tennis or who knows, like, how big we can get. Um, I do see ESPN uh, legitimizing us. Um, the tricky part we see with that is, and we're in negotiations with them right now, we're hoping to do another one, uh, another tournament this year, um, is not as many, you know, we, we ran it, we had a couple tournaments on last year and we heard from a lot of our players that said, Hey, I'd love to watch it, but I don't have cable. Mm-hmm. And you know, I'm a 43 year old guy. So of course I have cable. I've always <laughs> had cable. Um, but a lot of our community does not. So we need to make sure that wherever we're broadcasting, it's someplace where, you know, majority of our players can see it. So while ESPN two is doing a good job of, I think, helping legitimize what we're doing, we also need to make sure that we're on a platform that everybody can view it. Um, yeah. So, yeah, last year was a fantastic PR year for us. You know, we had a couple on ESPN2, um, front page of the Wall Street Journal, uh, Today Show, Good Morning America. Like, and this is all, for the most part, press that came to us. You know, we don't work with a PR firm. So, um, yeah, and I think that having the tournaments and sponsorships and all that just, again further helps legitimize the sport as a whole. Mm -hmm. So just hypothetically speaking, you know, looking at the future, let's say RoundNet never really breaks into that, you know, not even necessarily mainstream sports like your basketballs or footballs, but even just as like a volleyball level. Like Mm -hmm. if it never really breaks into that realm and it's kind of still keeps this association as that game you play in the backyard and you guys are still selling, you know, tons of products, you're doing well. Are you okay with that or... Are you okay with kind of that realm remaining that way? Or would you say moving forward, like your dream is to make it this big sport? I, of course, love it when others legitimize what we do. Um, But that's not why we do what we do. Mm -hmm. Uh, I love uh, just having a hand in building that community. As long as people are still coming together, forming new relationships, and having fun around something that we had our hand in, that's what I consider success. Um, you know, a lot of people will say, oh, when's Spikeball going to be in the Olympics? Yeah. <laughs> um, 
two years from now. That would be awesome, right? <laughs> um, we've had a lot of internal conversations, like should we put forth a formal plan on how to do that? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Ultimate was recognized by yeah. the USOC or maybe the IOC a couple of years ago. Um, you know, I, I listened to a podcast with uh, Jake Burton, um, and he was talking about when snowboarding became a um, uh, an Olympic sport. You know, he's more or less the godfather of snowboarding, mm-hmm. right? Um, he had nothing to do with it. He found out uh, when it became public news, and he was kind of upset, you know, that nobody called him or, you know, involved him or anything. But, um, you know, he just wanted to build a great company and a great product and all that. And one of the end results was somebody else bringing it to the Olympics. If that happened to us, fine. I'd like to think that we're tighter with the community and we'll, we'll have a part of it if it happens. But I... Personally, I, you know, let's say it's 25 years from now and we're not in the Olympics or we're not as big as volleyball. Um, I would not see that as a failure. I'd say as long as we're still involved in events and bringing people together, um, it's success. You know, the mission of the company is to build the next great global sport. Mm-hmm. Um, some of our strongest growth right now is overseas. And, you know, I mentioned some of our tournaments overseas earlier. Same things happening in Australia. Same things happening in South America. And it isn't because we decided and said, yeah, it'd be pretty cool. Let's try and launch in South America. We're getting inbound emails every single day mm-hmm. from people saying, raising their hand saying, I want to be the person that helps create it here. Somehow they stumbled on it. You know, maybe they went to New York on vacation. They went to Central Park and they saw people playing in Sheep's Meadow. Maybe they came to Chicago here and they saw some people playing on North Avenue Beach. Or maybe they saw a random Instagram post and that's how they got hooked. But word is spreading. Um, and yeah. Feel exciting. Feel times. happy to be a part of it. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, I mean, that's about all I have for the most part. Is there anything I forgot along the way? Is there anything that you want to mention? Um, come to our tournaments. Yeah. Join our community. Um, <laughs> so you can check us out at spikeball.com. Um, if you're playing a bunch and you're having a hard time finding friends to play with, we have a Spikeball app mm-hmm. where it's a fantastic way to find local players. Um, yeah, hopefully you'll join us. All right. Thanks so much, Chris. This was great. Absolutely. Thank you, Nate. I appreciate it. That was our show. I hope you enjoyed both conversations. Uh, I'm looking forward to working with Chris in the future and just seeing where Spikeball goes. A lot of interesting stories there. And hey, I'm all for round net being recognized as a sport. Imagine if it ends up in the Olympics. That would be pretty wild. Anyway, as always, you can follow me on Twitter at ByNatriel. You can follow the website at Unplugged. That's U-N-P-L-U-G-G underscore D. Log on to the website, PowderBlueMedia.com. And hey, subscribe to our YouTube channel, Hot Take Show Episode 2. I'm telling you, all sorts of great stuff coming out in the near future. Until next time, see ya.